About two weeks ago, I discovered, finally, <laughs> that the music app that comes with my Amazon Prime membership has commercial-free stations. Uh, since discovering that, I've enjoyed exploring the variety of station options. Well, earlier this week, uh, while working on this sermon, I turned on the, the top Christian station. Not just the Christian station, the top Christian station. Uh, so while studying Ephesians 1 with top Christian music playing, uh, I realized that almost every song was about me. All in the first person, bringing the listener into the songwriter's voice. Almost every song was about how my Christianity, my faith, serves me by making my life better. Last Sunday, by God's grace, uh, we heard an incredibly encouraging sermon from Psalm 34 about how our good God rescues his people from their troubles. So yes, Christianity, our faith does make our life better, much better. But, and this is important, how we define what better means and looks like is crucial. The songs I was hearing, though, and as an act of small kindness, I'm not going to name any of the songs nor artists, because I'm pretty sure that some of us will listen to a few of those songs in our cars after the service. So, but the songs I was hearing inverted Psalm 34. No praises for God for who He is. No eschatological viewpoint. Uh, no allusion to, much less mention, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All very rooted in the prevailing cultural tone of self-serving individualism. Christianity as a self-help ideology affirming me. And you want to know what? I loved it. It spoke to me. Those songs found a welcoming home in my heart. That's a, a twist most of you weren't expecting. Um, but shamefully, it's true. I want to hear how my life can be made better on my terms. How my dreams can be fulfilled. How I can overcome giants that are keeping me from achieving great things. I didn't name the song. How my gifts and talents will be honored and treasured. How my days on this planet will be filled with happiness and good things. How I'm important and unique and how I matter. I love hearing those things. Yet mercifully, and as I already stated, I was studying Ephesians 1 as my heart began glorifying myself. And through the Word of God, uh, the Holy Spirit quickly disabused me, at least in that moment, of my embrace of self-serving individualism. And Ephesians 1 where our text this morning is located, is an antidote to the dominant theme of our age, well, of all ages, of looking inward and glorifying self and finding strength inside of us. In contrast, Ephesians 1 calls us to glory in God's work in our hearts and minds while pointing us to Christ. This morning's text is verses 15 through 23, but I'm going to begin by reading verses 3 through 14. So if you haven't already done so, please turn to Ephesians 1, which can be found on page 976 of the Bibles provided in the pews. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. And please follow along as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So then after that uh, beautiful Trinitarian hymn of praise, in verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks, remembering you in my prayers. If we read through the passage quickly without really meditating on what we're reading, uh, it would be easy to assume that Paul's reason for giving thanks is because of the reader's faith, my faith. And the reader's love, my love. But, but that's not really how Paul is using that parenthetical clause. Paul has heard testimony of the Ephesians' growing faith in Christ made visible through love. So, so Paul is giving thanks because, for this reason, the wonderful truths embedded in our, and articulated in the Trinitarian hymn of praise of verses 3-14 through 14 belong to the Ephesians in and through Christ. Paul is giving thanks to God for God's ongoing work in the hearts and lives of the Ephesians. And that, of course, includes their faith and love for the saints. But but make no mistake, Paul is giving thanks for God's work. But before we can really dive into verses 15 through 23, uh, we should know what Paul is talking about with the words for this reason. So let's briefly look at the epilogue to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which I just read to give us some context. So in verse 3, Paul writes... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul's praise to God quickly moves into and includes the claim that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we'll get to who is included in that us a little later, Lord willing. For now, though, I want us to briefly see what Paul says those blessings are. So, So just scan through the next few verses. What do you see? What are the blessings? Large mansions, fat bank accounts, Italian sports cars, probably a a 2019 Ferrari 812, vacation homes, good health, stable, loving families with thankful, obedient children. God truly blesses his people, right? Of course God blesses his people, but what follows in those verses has nothing to do with any of our society's markers of success. Like literally nothing to do with material blessings in this life. That's not to say we shouldn't be thankful for the good things God gives us in this life. But in our Western context, it's vital that we see and accept and praise God that when the Bible talks about blessings for God's new covenant people, they are spiritual blessings leading to the inheritance we'll fully receive upon the final day. The day of Christ's second coming when he will judge the earth and all that is in it. And and that's what Paul lays out here in verses 4 through 14, leading into our text this morning. Paul is blessing God, praising God, for making believers his children. If you are repenting of your sins and placing your faith in the life, 
death and resurrection of Jesus, God has chosen you. You can see all this in the verses. God has chosen you, called you, adopted you, justified you, is sanctifying you, and will one day glorify you. Those are the blessings we receive from our Heavenly Father in Christ. And first and foremost, the greatest gift, the greatest blessing God bestows on His children is the gift of Himself through faith in Jesus. We are united to the Father because we are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.23, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. What greater blessing could there be than being in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father? No matter what your earthly situation is, being rightly related to God through Christ is all the blessing you need. And looking towards the future, though, having an eschatological perspective, being in Christ means that Jesus' inheritance is our inheritance. And Paul reveals what Jesus' inheritance is in verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. So to fully appreciate that, we need to back up a bit. As in, all the way to Genesis, with a quick glance at 1 Corinthians 15.45, where Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. And then another very quick stop on our way back to Genesis at Romans 5.14, where Paul reveals that Adam, the first Adam, was a type of the one who was to come, Jesus. Alright, so, so as the second and final Adam, Jesus is accomplishing what the first Adam, all the way back in Genesis, could not and did not. An important part of what was wrapped up in being made in the image of God was that Adam and Eve were created to be God's son and daughter and were to be his vice regents ruling over creation. And they were to rule in ways that reflected God's righteousness, giving God all the glory. In doing so, they were to subdue the earth and all that's in it and exercise dominion while populating the earth with more sons and daughters of God who would give him praise and glory with all they said and did. But that didn't happen. Believing they were owed part of God's glory, Adam and Eve rebelled because they wanted to be like God. And so, when you look around this planet, when you see all the brokenness, the pain, the suffering, the injustice, the death, you see the inheritance of the first Adam and his descendants. This world is corrupt and full of decay. That's an indisputable fact. And that's a reflection of what we're born in our hearts with. We're born with the same disgusting desire to rebel against God that consumed Adam and caused him to attempt to drag God off his throne. And then, when God came down and crushed the coup, Adam had the nerve to point his finger at God and whine, this is your fault, God. And that's what we do. We rebel against God. We sin against God. And then when the inheritance of sin comes due, when the brokenness and decay and death snakes into our life, we point our finger at God and say, like the first Adam, this is your fault, God. But the brokenness and decay are the inheritance of natural men and women, those who are not in Christ, but in Adam. What's more, this broken world and the broken, rebellious lives that fill it are hurtling towards their final inheritance of eternal destruction at the hands of their just and holy Creator. But not the second Adam in those whom the Father has given him. Christ's inheritance is a new creation that is fully reconciled to God the Father and that will eternally praise and glorify him. And at this moment, Jesus is busy fulfilling his role as the second and final Adam. 
What do you think he meant when he told his disciples in John 14 that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And he did go and is preparing a place, a new creation, which means that he will return to gather those who are his to himself in that new creation. That same passage in John 14 also records Jesus' words that no one comes to the Father except through me. He then talks about how he and the Father are one. Being reconciled to Jesus by repenting and believing means being reconciled to God. By grace, through faith, Jesus is making new sons and daughters of God who will populate the new heavens and new earth where we will eternally praise and glorify God with all we say and do. But those, new, but those new people, the new nation made up of all tribes and tongues, God's people have to be given new life. We have to be born again, chosen, called, regenerate, given repentance and faith, justified, sanctified, and ultimately glorified. The blessings in Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 10. We're part of Jesus' inheritance even as we receive it. And this mystery, as Paul calls it, begins to be revealed during Jesus' earthly ministry. I've already alluded to it. John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did you think that Jesus was using a random metaphor in John 3? No, Jesus is directly connecting his ministry of seeking and saving sinners to creation and the creation mandate of Genesis 1 that the first Adam failed to obey. The second and final Adam is filling the new creation with sons and daughters of God. And so as this new people of God, his sons and daughters, we await our full and final inheritance of praising and glorifying God with all we say and do in the new heavens and new earth. And yet in the meantime, as we wait, the brokenness and chaos and death that was our inheritance while we were in the first Adam and dead in our sins continues to break into our lives and reminds us that Ephesians 1.10 has yet to fully and finally happen. So Paul reminds us in verses 13 and 14 that another of Jesus' promises that was recorded in John 14 has come true. We are given a down payment on our final inheritance. We are given Christ's spirit. And why would we trade that? Why would we say that, that Christ's spirit and his sanctifying work in our heart and life are not enough? Yet there are times when we are tempted to turn back to our old life and deny the sufficiency of God because we want material blessings now. We want our full inheritance now. We're not satisfied with the riches of God's eternal blessings. We want the false gold offered us by a rebellious world right now, denying that the Holy Spirit is enough while refusing to live in a manner that looks ahead to the final day when God is going to unite all things under the heavens and on the earth to himself through Christ. So this brings us back to verse 15 and Paul's joyful exclamation, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul's thankfulness is for us too. God has blessed us by adopting us as his children and has given us an eternal inheritance. And the down payment for that inheritance is the Holy Spirit who is making us more and more like Christ. So, so moving ahead, as we look at verses 15 through 23, we're going to do so under three headings. One, who gets this inheritance. Two, what's needed while waiting for the full inheritance. And three, Christ's magnificent role in all this. It's as unalliterated as I can make it. Sorry. So first, who gets this inheritance? Uh, that question is answered in Paul's parenthetical clause found in verse 15. Because I have heard of your faith 
in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Uh, by the way, Paul wrote this letter sitting in a Roman prison. After decades of deprivation, beatings, shipwrecks, and imprisonment for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul continues to focus on praising and thanking God for the blessings and riches found in Christ. And his thankfulness is outwardly focused on brothers and sisters in Christ who share in the Heavenly Father's blessings. It's those who have faith in Jesus whom Paul is praying for in our text this morning. Can you be counted in this prayer? Frankly, the most important question to ask yourself this morning is, am I included in Paul's prayer? Do I share in Christ's inheritance with the original recipients of Paul's letter? And kids, I want you to listen. Grown-ups too. But kids, this next bit that I'm going to say is the most important thing that you'll ever hear. Not because I'm saying it, but because of what it is. And how you respond is the most important decision you'll ever make. More important than what college you go to. More important than what you want to be when you grow up. More important than whether or not you play Little League fall ball. More important than who your friends are at school. So kids and grown-ups, is your inheritance that of the first Adams? Of eternal death and destruction? Or is your inheritance that of Christ's? Of an eternal life enjoying God's blessings? Because that's all there is. It's one or the other. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're either receiving death or you're receiving life. And the bad news is that we're all born in Adam. We're all born with eternal death and destruction as our inheritance because we're all sinners. So ask yourself, are you a sinner? And if you answered yes to that question, then apart from repentance and faith in Christ, you are in Adam. Your sin separates you from your Creator. And as Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's the good news. Jesus came to earth to provide a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. And that way is through repentance of our sins and faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Being born in the first Adam, we are incapable of obeying God. And so Jesus did that for those who repent and believe. And we are incapable of bearing God's just and righteous wrath for our sins. Again, Jesus did that for those who repent and believe. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience, doing all the Father willed, and then took the sins of those who repent and believe upon himself as he willingly mounted the cross. After bearing the full weight of the Father's wrath, Jesus died. Three days later, he rose from the grave. And so if you haven't already done so, acknowledge that you are a sinner, deserving of the first Adam's inheritance of God's wrath. Repent of your sins and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about that, I'll be at the back door after the service is over, Lord willing. Or ask someone sitting near you. I'd love nothing more than to find out on that final day that everyone in this room has the same faith as those for whom Paul was praying. And for those who do have the same faith in Jesus as those for whom Paul was praying, take note that he added, in your love toward all the saints. That's Paul's shorthand for saying, the evidence for your faith is your love for each other, which is the product of the Spirit's sanctifying work in your hearts. In John 13, 35, Jesus uttered the oft-quoted words, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So you know how Paul can say with confidence that the Ephesians have faith in Jesus? Because of their love for the saints. And what does loving your brothers and sisters in Christ look like? Sadly, the, the word love has been co-opted by serpent Satan and repurposed as a self-serving emotional tool used in the ongoing rebellion against God. 
It's most often represented and defined as emotional fulfillment, as in my emotional fulfillment, not necessarily yours, mine. And it's frequently framed as a transaction. You make me happy, and I make you happy, and so we're all good. However, if you stop making me happy, well, I've got to live my truth, you know. I've got to do me, right? We're inundated with this. If we spend any amount of time consuming the culture around us, we're covered in this. And don't make the mistake of thinking that this self-serving repurposing of love won't negatively affect you if you mindlessly engage the world's culture. It will. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this world is not our friend, much less our ally, as we strive to grow in grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you don't fight against it through the power of the Spirit, this world's culture will turn you inward. And frankly, we don't need a lot of enticing to turn inward. We love ourselves. But loving each other is turning outward. It's serving each other regardless of what we receive in return. And we know that love is serving others regardless of what we receive in return. Because a little later in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul commands husbands to love their wife the way Christ loves his bride, the church. For the record, husbands, it's commanded. It's, it's not suggested. So, so while that command is for husbands, what it reveals about God's definition of love is instructive. Think about it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, has there ever been a moment when Christ has stopped serving you? And bumped up against that, has there ever been a day or even an hour during your life as a Christian when you haven't sinned? Jesus never stops serving us even while we sin. He's not in heaven complaining to the Father about His bride. He's not saying, I'm tired of giving myself to them. Look how unfaithful they are. Not a day goes by where they don't cheat on me through their self-serving turning back to sin. No. Jesus is in heaven interceding for His bride before the Father. He's saying, you gave them to me, Father. They're mine. I shed my blood for them and I will not let them go. And I will bring them safely home. That's love. And it's that level of self-sacrificial service that we're called to display to the world through our love towards the saints, towards each other. And it's only the work of Christ's Spirit in our heart that turns us outward like that. Thankfully, the Spirit-sanctifying work is the guarantee of our inheritance. To, to use Paul's words from verse 14, a, a down payment, to use a more modern phrase. Brothers and sisters in Christ, by God's grace and through the work of the Holy Spirit, strive to display Jesus' love for His bride by how you serve, love each other. By way of quick application, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that Paul doesn't cease to pray for the Ephesian Christians. And prayer is an act of love. If you're not praying for your fellow church members on a regular basis, can you honestly say that you're loving them? And this brings us to our second point. What's needed while waiting for the full inheritance? In verse 17, Paul transitions from a prayer of thanksgiving to uh, supplication. He asks God to continue his work in the hearts and lives of the Ephesian Christians. Look again at verses 17 through 18. Paul prays that God will grant believers a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. As those who are in Christ wait for God's full inheritance, we're not called to exist in a state of inertia. To describe the Christian life, the Bible doesn't use the metaphor of sitting in an airport terminal 
impatiently checking your watch every few minutes while avoiding making eye contact with your fellow passengers as you passively wait for your flight. The Christian life isn't huddling with closed eyes in the corner, hoping to survive all the chaos swirling around you until Jesus comes back. No, we're, we're called to an act of faith and an act of hope. This is why throughout his letters, Paul uses metaphors like running a race and fighting a battle to describe the Christian life. He, he concludes this letter uh, with the famous passage calling us to put on the whole armor of God. Thankfully, though, we don't have to put on the whole armor of God, much less contend for the faith in our own power. Well before chapter 6, here in chapter 1, Paul tells the Ephesians, I am constantly praying that God will do these things for you. When you read through Ephesians, when you get to the end, remind yourself of what Paul said in chapter 1. It's very important. And let's briefly look at those things while keeping in mind that we're looking at the work of God in the hearts and lives of His children and not what we bring to the table. The first thing Paul asks God to provide the Ephesians is the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of Him. Essentially, Paul is asking that God would grow the Ephesians Christians in the knowledge of God. All right, so... So there is a friendly disagreement among conservative scholars over what Paul means by spirit in verse 17. Some believe that Paul is referring directly to the Holy Spirit. Some believe that Paul is referring to human spirit, akin to desire. For those who believe the second, they ask of the first. Why would Paul ask God to give the Ephesians the Holy Spirit when he's explicitly written a few verses earlier that they already have the Holy Spirit? The first argue that the context of the passage points to the work of the Holy Spirit and that the content of Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 1 is very similar to the content of 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6-16, through 16, in which he explains that only the Holy Spirit can reveal knowledge and wisdom. Here in verse 17, they argue, Paul isn't asking for the Spirit. He's asking for believers to be awakened by God to the Spirit's work of revealing wisdom to them. So, however you want to pull apart and parse that word out in verse 17... The important thing is that Paul is praying that God, through the Holy Spirit, will give the Ephesians knowledge of himself, which, of course, includes the desire to grow in grace and knowledge. It's not that complicated, but scholars have to fill books with lots of words. By way of application, not only should we be praying this for each other, but we should also be praying this for ourselves. Before starting your Bible reading, pray this. Ask God to reveal himself to you through his word. Don't enter your Bible reading under the assumption that you can figure it out on your own. Enter your Bible reading with humility, understanding that knowledge and wisdom are revealed by God through His Spirit and not discovered by you in your collection of skills and smarts. Now, Paul's second request isn't simply related to that first request. It's an extension. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Verse 18. Here, Paul is not, is not simply asking for knowledge of God's ways and purposes, for wisdom, but for a knowledge that produces faith. So, so building on the request for God through the work of the Spirit to give believers knowledge of God, Paul is asking for that knowledge to change the hearts of believers. The, the concepts of enlightenment and illumination were frequently used in the Greco-Roman world in conjunction with their pluralistic religions. So Paul's not using something that's out of step with his, his culture. For them, for the Greco-Roman world, enlightenment was an inner experience of something that is unable to be seen or touched, something that is outside of the human senses. So for many of us living in a post-enlightenment, big E enlightenment context, especially in a reform context, we're conditioned to view our faith in mostly intellectual terms, if not completely in intellectual terms. 
We believe, rightly so, that, that Christianity is rational and defined and understood by objective truth claims that are true in all times and, and places for all people. Now, so as not to be misunderstood, our faith, Christianity, is rational and is objectively true. The Bible is replete with propositional statements, truth claims. We are all sinners. That's what's called a propositional statement. The truth of that statement is not determined by how you feel about it, how you interact and respond to it. God created the cosmos and everything contained within the cosmos. The only way to the Father is through Jesus. God condemns sinners to hell. All propositional statements, truth claims, that are not dependent on how you nor I feel about them, nor how we interact and respond to them. It doesn't matter if you say, well, I feel like a loving God allows people to come to him wherever they're at and however they're able. You know, all, all sides of the mountain lead to the top. No, it, it doesn't matter how deeply you feel that to be true or how much you think it must be true or how much you want it to be true. It contradicts Jesus' truth claim in John 14 that the only way to God is through him. So again, to reiterate I'm not saying that our faith, that Christianity isn't rational, because it is rational and is structured and gloriously girded by many truth claims. However, Paul does positively use the imagery of his time period to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers. And the Greek word Paul used that is translated enlightenment in most Bible versions would have been read by the original recipients as a profound spiritual understanding of things that transcend the human senses' ability to discern much less understand and accept. The mysteries of God need to be translated for us in our hearts and mind. Faith is a gift. Ephesians 2 eight, just a few verses later, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Our salvation, being rightly related to God, is not something that we have the power to do or to figure out. It's a spiritual reality that has to be given to us. Interestingly, Paul seems to have invented the metaphor, eyes of the heart. In Greco-Roman pagan religions, enlightenment was connected with the eyes, a metaphor for the entire being. As, as many of you know, Hebrews use the word heart as a metaphor for the entire being. Paul appears to have been crafting a metaphor that would have been intelligible across cultural boundaries. So as, as Paul describes in Ephesians 4.18, those who were previously darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Paul is saying here in 118 that they are being enlightened to the mystery of God's person and will and works by the Holy Spirit. And he prays for that to continue. And Paul prays for that to continue so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Verse 18. His thought continues into verse 19 and beyond. But as we wrap up our second point, we're going to focus on the rest of verse 18. And we're going to take this backwards, starting with uh, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We've already spent time discussing our share in Christ's inheritance. However, the last half of verse 18 reveals that believers are God's inheritance. And Paul describes this inheritance of believers as riches and glorious. God values his people because we bring him glory. United to God through our faith in Christ, we can know our hope and live out our hope because God will accomplish his eternal will and purposes. He will not allow his inheritance to spoil or to be taken from him or to fail to ultimately bring him glory. This hope, this confidence should spur us on to good works and to pursue holy lives. Sure, there will be days when we're discouraged as we fall back into our old inheritance of sin. But we have the hope of the sovereignty of our Heavenly Father 
that He will accomplish all that He wills and that He will be glorified. As one theologian put it, for Paul, hope was important and entailed a firm set of convictions about certain events that would happen at the end of time and what the implications of these events were for believers. And that theologian's words apply to Ephesians 1.18. You see, Paul's not urging his readers to an inert faith that simply waits for Jesus to return. Much of the rest of this letter, much of the rest of Ephesians, is either Paul's further explanation of the rich theological truths of chapter 1, or applications stemming from these truths. Specifically, applications related to living in this fallen world as Christ's bride called the church. But Jesus is coming back, as he promised. God's children will be safely brought home, and we will enjoy eternal life in the new heavens and new earth as we worship and praise our Heavenly Father. Our hope is secure. And so, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we should live in the here and now in light of that hope, that truth. God has called us to live as his children and to be his light to a dark world. Thankfully, as Paul's emphasis throughout this passage comfortingly asserts, it's God's power, His working, that makes that possible. Before getting into the meat of his letter, before saying, do this, Paul is emphasizing that our hope is in God and His work. And that brings us to our third point. Christ's magnificent role in all this. That hope to which God has called His children is not only the glorious inheritance, but as verse 19 makes clear, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great mind. Uh, Paul goes on to further clarify where or rather in whom God's work is situated and displayed. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places. If you're tempted to doubt God's love, look to Christ's death on the cross. If you're tempted to doubt God's power, Look to Christ's resurrection. And if you're tempted to doubt God's plans and purposes, look to Christ's ascension. God's powerful work is most fully displayed in Jesus. And Paul details God's powerful work in Jesus with four clauses to close out our text this morning. One, God raised Christ. Two, God seated Christ. Three, God subjected everything to Christ. And four, God gave Christ the church. With these four powerful acts, God has established his anointed king, the victor over all. I think I said this in a previous sermon, but, and contradicting almost every Reformed preacher you will ever hear, I'm not a fan of of the analogy of D-Day when referencing the time period between Christ's ascension and his return. When the courageous soldiers stood a few miles inland from Normandy after D-Day, as much as they had accomplished... As important as the toehold in Western Europe, their efforts and sacrifice gave the Allies, the war was far from over. Even with the advantage of hindsight, historians don't claim that the war was completely lost for Germany at that point. Sure, the tide had turned, but the war was not over. A better analogy from World War II for the period between Christ's ascension and his return would be the Japanese soldiers scattered on remote Pacific islands who continued to fight after the formal surrender on August 15th because they didn't hear about it or they refused to believe it or accept it. Christ's victory is more than assured. It's happened. We're just waiting for our September 2nd, 1945, when the victory is officially signed and sealed. And yes, you could pull that metaphor apart too. And how do we know this victory has happened? Well, look at our text. 
The reversal of the fall and the, the reversal of the fall and the reversal of the curse began at Christ's resurrection. The seed crushed the serpent's head. By raising Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit vindicated Christ's claim to be the Son of God as well as his spotlessness, his sinlessness. Death is the inheritance for sinners. And Jesus is sinless. He didn't deserve death. Acts 2.24 But God raised Him from the dead, freeing Him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Him. Then 40 days after His resurrection, a number that should cause you to think of many events from the Bible, but that's a discussion for another day. 40 days after His resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father where He is today. And Paul describes it as far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now some, believe it or not, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ claim that it's inappropriate to refer to Jesus as king. They believe that he won't become king until after his second coming. But Paul's words in verse 21 and 22 are absolute in their scope. All rule and authority and power and dominion. Above every name that is named. And all things under his feet. And Paul's words are also all-encompassing when it comes to time. Paul's words are in the past tense. God the Father has already done this. However, Paul also makes sure to let the readers know that Jesus' absolute rule includes the eternal age to come. This past week, Ligonier reposted an article written by the late Dr. Sproul titled, What is the Kingdom of God? In it, Dr. Sproul explained, When he came, Jesus inaugurated God's kingdom. And when he ascended into heaven, he went there for his coronation, for his investiture as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So Jesus' kingship is not something that remains in the future. Christ is king right this minute. He is in the seat of the highest cosmic authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to God's anointed Son. So because of this, and building on Dr. Sproul's words, our job is to tell others that Jesus has won. That they don't have to remain under serpent Satan's rule. That they don't have to remain under the bondage of sin and death. Our King will pardon their rebellion and give them eternal freedom if they repent and believe. Through faith in Christ, their inheritance of eternal death will be replaced with Christ's inheritance of eternal life and of God Himself. But that offer has a shelf life. If they die in their rebellion, they enter eternity under our King's wrath. Or if our King returns before they repent and believe, they will be judged and condemned as the wicked rebels they are. So now is the time to repent and believe. Today is the day. Our mission as followers of King Jesus isn't to cower in fear nor to be overwhelmed with feelings of defeatism. Of course society is anti-Christ, anti-Christian. They don't know that they've lost or they refuse to accept it. They believe that they've won or will won and they want to be left alone to eat, drink, and be merry as they flaunt their rebellion against God. They don't want to be bothered by Christians reminding them that they owe obedience to their Creator and what their eternal inheritance will be if they don't submit. If we're comfortable and accepted in our society, we should probably ask ourselves what we're doing wrong. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
However, sinners' refusal to accept that Jesus is king, that he has overcome the world, doesn't make him any less the king of kings and the Lord of lords with authority over all rule and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. As we conclude this morning, we need to circle back to the fact that we've been looking at the the content of Paul's prayer. And Paul wraps it up where he begins with the inheritance of God's blessings. Look at verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Those of us who are repenting uh, and placing our faith in Christ are his inheritance. However, it's mutual. Paul says here that God's crowning of Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords is for us, for Christ's church, to bolster our faith, to recognize that Christ is our all in all. And here in Ephesians 1, Paul again uses one of his favorite metaphors to describe the church, a body. In Romans and 1 Corinthians, Paul uses this metaphor to press believers into embracing our unity that exists in Christ. And and that that pressing of of spirit-giving unity is here in Ephesians, but that's not where Paul's emphasis is. His emphasis is on the Lordship of Christ. In Colossians 1.18, Paul explicitly refers to Christ as the head of the church, his body. However, here in our text, Paul, when he refers to Jesus as the head over all things, he means over everything. Whether they acknowledge it or not, God the Father has placed all things and all people under the feet of God the Son. And notice this, the verse says, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Let the stunning magnitude of that statement envelop your heart. And gave him as head over all things to the church. Letting that sit in your heart We'll get back to it. For now, though, please listen to this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as as Christ's body, we are called to a spirit-given unity for God's glory and as Christ's inheritance. We are called to demonstrate our adoption as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father through our sacrificial service to each other. We are called to miraculously display Christ's love for us and our love for people who are from different economic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different personalities, different struggles, different opinions, different everything. Arlington Baptist Church is a unified body of diverse people that from a human standpoint shouldn't be unified as one. That's part of the mystery of the gospel. No member of Arlington Baptist Church is called to carry hurt and burdens alone. No member of Arlington Baptist Church is allowed to separate himself from other members over hurt feelings. No member of of Arlington Baptist Church is called to serve God alone. God has given us each other to love, to serve, and to serve Him together. And I pray, I pray that that continues here. This church has been a wonderful blessing to so many because of Christ's unity, because of what Christ has done for us. Love each other, brothers and sisters. As wonderful as that is, you know what's even better? God has given us Christ the King of kings and Lord of lords, the head over all things is our inheritance. 
unlike how the spiritually blinded yet spiritually searching Kafka portrayed the King of Kings in his novel, The Castle. The real King of Kings is not separate from his people. Jesus is not distant and unattainable. His Spirit indwells us, unifies us. And in chapter 2, verse 6, just a few verses later, Paul says that God has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are filled with Christ. And by His power, we are called to participate in the subduing of serpent Satan's already defeated kingdom. And we are called to do that as one body as we seek to make disciples. So brothers and sisters in Christ, pursue growing in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ with the confidence that comes from knowing that you are in Christ who is the head of all things. Pursue serving each other in the confidence that the power of Christ is yours. Guard the unity of this body with a determination that comes from knowing that the King of kings and Lord of lords is our head. Share the gospel with unbelievers in boldness knowing that Christ has already conquered sin and death and that nothing... Not even serpent Satan himself can undermine Christ's work nor separate you from the love of your Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us yourself through Christ. We thank you for adopting us into your family through faith in Christ. We thank you for our sanctification and for our future glorification. We pray now that those wonderful truths, those wonderful blessings will be made alive in our hearts and that we will desire to serve you and to serve each other and to serve our community with all joy and with all boldness as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray as we leave this morning that our hope will be only in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.